Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. We're back with Gov Actually. It is actually morning while we're taping this beautiful union market. Uh, I'm drinking coffee. Danny doesn't. I don't drink coffee. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to talk with Danny about the president's management agenda, which just came out. Yeah. I mean, it came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, they uh, did an event in Kansas City, which, um, which is interesting, uh, getting outside the Beltway. And, and one of the— Which me- one? Kansas City, Kansas or Kansas City, I Missouri? I think it was Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah. yeah um, that's the bigger—that's the one with the bigger federal presence. Well, and I think what the symbolic implication of doing it outside the Beltway was is that there, there are federal employees all over the country. Actually, it's uh, the the federal and the world's largest employer in Kansas City, Missouri. Wait, we'll say that again. The federal government's the largest employer in Kansas City, Missouri. That surprised me. I only know that because as the GSA administrator, you're a big deal in Kansas City, Missouri. Oh, really? Yeah. Are you? It's like a band. Like we're big in Japan. You were big in Kansas City. (laughs) Exactly. We're big in Kansas. Big, big. That's that's exciting. Capital B I G. Well, you know, huge maybe. Well, you know, I think there's there's always this sense, you know, we've talked about the fact that there's always this sense like the bureaucrat in D.C., this kind of negative connotation of government. Actually, and D.C. has one of the lowest percentages of, you know, of uh, federal percentage of federal workers in places with big amounts of federal workers. I find that yeah, hugely no, the, shocking. The biggest percentage I mean, are in places like uh, Huntsville, yeah. Alabama. San Diego, California, I think Boston even has yeah. a higher percentage of federal employees. And and we've talked about the fact that that makes it very difficult to reorganize, realign, consolidate, shrink government because all politics is local and a lot of the potential opportunities to reshape government would displace federal employees not in out of DC, right. but in local communities, shut down federal buildings in local communities. And when you do that, when people are losing jobs or being displaced or you're moving federal employees out of a federal building and and the future of that building is unknown to the local community, you get pushback. Yeah, there's a a rule in the Department of Agriculture if they want to close a a field office, the assistant secretary actually has to go to the, the jurisdiction and hold a hearing. And with yeah. thousands of offices, the ability to close one or two percent of exactly. Those. So, so the fact that that there are federal employees spread throughout the United States, I think, is sometimes in the dialogue about government. It's like a lot of the concentrated energy is like, what's wrong with Washington? What's wrong in Washington? And I think, I think people generally tend to think of the government employee located just in D.C., but the reality is, is there are government employees all over the country doing great work, and I think the president's management agenda being announced in Kansas City was an ongoing recognition that our government is is spread, and, and there's, there's, there's benefits to having that, immense benefits. I mean, obviously, the government closer to, um, to citizens when there's uh, a need for the government and citizen to have a touch point, but also there's cheaper real estate costs outside of D.C., mm-hmm. There's uh, there's talent 
Um, and not everyone wants to live in D.C. And there's talented people in Texas and California and Arkansas and et cetera. And Actually, the government is there. The Treasury Department saved a bunch of money and, and created this, um, this economic engine out in Parkersburg, West Virginia, with the um, Administrative uh, Resource Center, the right, ARC. Right. You remember the ARC. Of course. Yeah. And I know that there's very talented people in Parkersburg, right. West Virginia. That, that's a, a high-performing yeah. part of the Treasury. Yep. Uh, the University of Ohio basically had a pipeline straight to the ARC. So there were all these young, smart accounting majors who are sitting yeah. at the Administrative Resource Center in Parkersburg, West Virginia. And, and frankly, earning a government salary in Parkersburg, in Parkersburg yeah. is not a bad deal. No, you could, you could, the housing prices were really quite remarkable. Versus here. And you're like, is in, this missing a digit? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> versus here in D.C. Well, you know, when we were setting it up, uh, this conversation, uh, I, I think I use the word uh, trust in government. Um, there's an interesting discussion in the document that makes up the President's Management Agenda release around um, citizens' trust in government. And there's stats in there that talk about how low, when you poll Americans about their, their trust in government, their assessment of the government's performance, it's chronically low. And I feel like it's, I mean, ever since I've been involved and a student of this, uh, of government, I've always seen this shockingly low number in terms of citizen satisfaction or citizens trust in in government as uh, on, on the aggregate. And you hear about it too, a lot of news is made about, you know, the president's approval rating and Congress's approval rating, Um, but, Government, there's also surveys out there that, that go to the government's approval rating. And, you know, I was wondering how important is that to high-functioning government if the citizenry is frustrated? I, I actually think that this is a, a really important and fascinating question. I, and I appreciate the administration actually highlighting it. One of the things I saw at the local government level was a much closer... Um, connection to an interest in those numbers and changing and driving those numbers. So Mayor Williams very famously had a whole effort that even involved secret shoppers calling agencies and asking for services and then tracking, you know, the performance yeah. of the agencies. As an agency head in that administration, I would get a scorecard at cabinet meetings every month that rated our performance against answering the phone, delivering the services, even even put a survey out every year asking people which agencies they thought were doing a good job and which weren't. I think it's a, there's an important... I, I um, conflated two concepts, and I want to split them out. Okay. There's satisfaction with the performance of a government entity in doing a function. Like, hey, I could get through to them. When I got through to them, I got a clear answer. They sent me the form I needed, and the form wasn't overly complicated, or the opposite. And then there's trust in government. And the and actually, the PMA... And I the, would argue that those two are directly correlated. They They're, may be. They march in lockstep with each other. Well, then, all right, so this is interesting. Because okay. if you look at the... You're just about to prove me wrong, aren't you? No, no, yeah. no. I'm, I'm looking at the statistics that are included in the PMA release. Sure. First of all, what's interesting is there's a table in here um, that says that, that that goes back to the 1950s, and in the and in, this is the percent of people that trust the federal government to do what's right. Mm-hmm. And back in 1950s to the early 60s, 
the percent who said they trust the federal government was in the 70s. And today, it's under 20%. Do you think there might be polling anomalies there? Do you think they were polling everyone in the 50s? Oh, that's interesting. I I think it would be interesting to dive into the science of that. Yeah. Or maybe people were just afraid to say they didn't trust their government. So, so here, but here, so okay. So, there's a really interesting question in terms of polling or culture right. or generational differences yeah. or something is in what what inherently occurred between the 1950s and today that puts the percentage of people that trust their government from in the 70s to below 20. So we'll we'll send the statistician out to get a cup of coffee, and so we won't we won't argue against the data. We'll just accept that that's the difference for, I, I think for the, the more, purpose of argument. Yeah, I think the more interesting question is what what yeah. happened to the American psyche um, or what happened to the government. Um, now, there's another table later in the, wow, in the that, document. We may need another whole podcast. I know. There's another table that shifts not from trust but to is the government doing a good job. Right. And this is kind of more more current data. And it lists all these various functions like does the government do a good job keeping the country safe from terrorism? 66% say yes. But Does look the, at, there's another data point on that table, and that is whether it's an important role of government or not, right? Yes. Oh, so, so 94% of those polled said that keeping the country safe from terrorism is an important role. What's and, the data point with the lowest um, percentage of it's an important role for government? On this table, yeah. it's setting standards for workplaces, 65%, which is still a majority. Right. So there's nothing on that table that people don't, at least two-thirds of people don't think is an important role for government. Yes. So that's that's I think that's an interesting data point right there. Yeah. Well, what I like about this table, I like this table a lot is, you know, we've in this podcast tried, you know, we are champions for government service and right. the critical things that government do and I, you know, I've said it a million times like what is the whether you want a small government or a big government, most people will agree you want the government to be effective at keeping us safe, keeping the sky safe, keeping the border safe protecting the food supply, all these different things. And that's the list of stuff that's here. It's and, key. and even that list suggests that people, at least two-thirds of people, at the lowest point of expectation think that the government should be doing these yes. jobs. Yes. From, from protecting workplace safety to uh, guarding against terrorism to protecting our, or creating an immigration system. And then, even though people, you know, the majority, the vast majority of people think that this is an important and vital role for government, then you begin to get into this issue of how do people feel the government's doing. Yeah. Well, but okay, so now let me, but remember, the trust in government table said it was less than 20%. Today. Right. Yeah, but here are some of the numbers in terms of, of all these critical things, the numbers of right. people that think we're doing a good job or the government's doing a good job. There you go at that. With a we, I know, yeah. never, they'll never take me out of, take the kid out of the government. Exactly. Can't well, get well, once you're in. I can't quit you, U.S. government. I can't quit you. Um, Keeping the country safe from terrorism, 66%. Responding to natural disasters, 64% think we're doing a good job. Ensuring safe food and medicine, 61% think we're doing a good job. Then you got some dips. Managing the U.S. immigration system, 32%. Protecting the environment, 44%. Maintaining infrastructure, 51% think we're doing a good job. The point is those are all significantly higher than 20%. What's the lowest? The lowest is helping people get out of poverty, 26%. 67% think it's an important role or major role of government. 26% think we're doing a good job. What's, what's, what are the issues, what are the ones where people think we're doing a less than good job that are below 
Yeah, okay, immigration, it's, protecting the environment, uh, ensuring basic income for people 65 or over, ensuring access to health care, ensuring access to a quality education, and helping people out of poverty. So Where they think we're doing a good job is terrorism, natural disaster response, this is above 50%, yeah. food safety, um, infrastructure, strengthening the economy. So those are the... So and, what do you see? What, do you, what see, pattern are you saying? I see like the most. Those are the most controversial hot button political. The ones issues. that are lower than fifty percent. Yeah. So those. So it's interesting. Is people's frustration with the performance of government is really keyed around those things that the the politics is is arguing the most about. It sounds like. Yeah, and that could be influencing because you hear you know you don't we, there are debates about how to keep the country safe from terrorism, but there's bipartisan yeah, support think, for it. It's right. like, you know, it's like, should we invest more in this or that? Right. Um, there's interesting questions about privacy implications with the Patriot Act and all sure. of that stuff. It's kind of on the but, margin. And, you know, you had bipartisan support for a substantial increase in DOD funding. And that might that might be an attenuated statement of that, but that's, you know, pretty much the the straightest vector towards keeping the government safe from terrorism. But if six so oh right, but if sixty six percent of the country feel if sixty six percent of people think we're doing a good job, right. how do you reconcile that with the trust issue? I'm gonna go back to that question. Is there something in Well I, I wonder if you asked the question how many Americans trust the military? I bet that number changes dramatically. It goes up yeah, from twenty. I bet you're right. That's a good point. The government as a whole right. is seen in a different light than the peace parts to the government. Yeah, and I think I think what's interesting is that trust in government thing is an inherently, you know, it's inherently baked into the political DNA of the United States of America. So like, there's an inherent mistrust skepticism of, of government. And I've always thought that that's yeah. an imp- that was kind of where I was going. It's like, is that an important ingredient that makes our this whole system work? Democracy, our government that there is this skepticism and maybe like when I was at the IRS, I, I, you know, I used to come up, you know, and we, you're unpopular, you're the tax collector. Right. And I used to say that's in the brochure, right. You know, that you're hired into the IRS and you're not going to be very popular right. as the tax collector. Taking people's money yeah. and saying, I'm going to spend it in ways that you may not personally have thought were important, but we as a society collectively think is, yeah, that's kind of, it's going to be inherently. It's a difficult negotiation. Yeah, yeah, no, and and um, but, but at the same time, it's, you know, the process generally works, um, mm-hmm. and um, well, it's, it's referred to as a voluntary tax system. Yeah, it's although enforced by. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the, uh, the I know. Compliance. This voluntary system is enforced yeah. with some pretty strict compliance. And it's still, it has one of the highest rates of participation in the world. That's something like 88%. Well, you, you would know better than right. that. Right, and I think part of that, and, and, and you don't have to audit a lot of people to get the, the effect, the incentive effect of understanding what the implications. It's kind of, you know, very, very high risk to, um, for, for what ends up being, I think most people find, rel- relatively small <laughs> reward. So what do, what do people's trust of the IRS? What, what if they'd ask that question? <laughs> well, you know, that's really interesting that you ask that because f- because of the voluntary compliance nature of the tax system, because we can't audit everyone, right? 
um, and that most people are out there just uh, doing it based on based on their own sense of civic duty plus this whatever it's difficult to quantify fear of getting audited, getting caught, and going to jail for tax evasion, whatever that, that mixture is. Um, ultimately, at the end of the day, I think the IRS feels like if, if there isn't trust in the IRS process, then there's going to be uh, potentially material reduction in voluntary compliance. And you don't need a lot yeah. to really throw off the revenue collection and impact our deficit. A, a modest change in attitude towards the IRS can really influence people's willingness to, to report and voluntarily comply. So when I was there and, and coming there out of a scandal, where people were protesting and uh, it was a nightly news story that the IRS had betrayed a, f a fundamental responsibility of, of non-biased implementation of the tax code, there was a lot of concern. Like, this is the one thing that can't happen. Like, we can't have degradation of trust because then the system falls apart. And so when I was there, I felt like the bottom line you know, it's like, you know, in a company, obviously, the bottom line is easy to identify. It's, you know, profit, <laughs> uh, revenue, and, and, um, and cost. Um, in the government, it's often difficult to locate the bottom line, um, more difficult. Uh, but when I was at the IRS, I felt like, well, our, our bottom line, you know, we, wanna, we need to collect effectively, and we need to enforce fairly. We need to do all these different things. But at the end of the day, we need to maintain that trust. So there's, you know, I don't, I don't have a good answer because I don't know that you're ever going to get, I don't know what the right metric is. Like, is it 30% of the people now trust, 40%? Is it even right to calculate it in that way? Is that something that we can even measure um, effectively with any meaningful impact versus satisfaction? Like, to me, if you called me up and said, okay, right now, 45% of the people that have dealings with the IRS are satisfied with the service they received, and that number was 55% three years ago. Now I can bring my team together and figure out, okay, what's going on with our wait times? Let's dig into some call center metrics. Let's dig, what, uh, is there, how often is our website down? Like, what's going on? Are things we can do with apps and other technologies to make things go better? But if you called me up and said, are the trust in IRS as an institution is down 10%. Uh, you know, it's more ambiguous in terms of what the corrective action is there. Yeah. Uh, although I do, th I, I don't know, I, I still think that one of the ways you would move that needle would be to work on that satisfaction issue. Yeah, because, that's fair. You know, I think if people are, it's hard to not trust something be, but be satisfied with it. I know, but the numbers, I, and we talked about it because you're, you're isolating different parts yeah. of, uh, but yeah. Okay, so when we get back, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Yeah, when we, we get back, let's talk about the solution set, and let's talk about maybe places where trust is higher and, and, and um, maybe places where there, there are labs and experiment opportunities for labs and experimentation that maybe the federal government can learn from. Absolutely. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, Danny, we, um, we uh, took a break in part so I could go and, and fact-check myself. You've been Googling. I've been while, Googling, while yes. I've been sitting And here. so I turned to a government executive, uh, and they told me that um, 
the cities with the highest percentage of federal workforce, um, uh, Washington, D.C. is right up at the top. It does have, um, it's the fourth highest with 14.1% of its uh, workforce made up in federal employees. But that's D.C. directly. So you start talking about the D.C. region actually drops uh, considerably. But topping it is Colorado Springs with 16.4%, Virginia Beach with 16.1%, and Honolulu with 15.4%. Um, federal government workers made up more than 10% of all employees in Ogden, Clearfield, Utah, 11.1%, El Paso, 11%, and San Diego. That's, those are big numbers. I when know, you think and San about, Diego, 10%. If you're like the mayor of those cities or a congressman in those districts, the federal workforce is now, now th- is a large chunk of your voters. Right. Now, 5 and 10% of all employees. So that's like between 1 in 10 and 1 in every 20 people you meet in the street who's working in cities like Augusta, Georgia, Baltimore, Maryland, Charleston, South Carolina, San Antonio, Texas, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Dayton, Ohio, uh, Columbia, South Carolina, Jacksonville, Florida, Tucson, Arizona. I don't know. I feel like you're singing a song. Like what? Is yeah, it? I know yeah. that is that. That's that. I've been every. Yeah, it's a, it's a Johnny Cash song. Johnny Cash song. But yeah. what is interesting? It is kind of a Johnny Cash song because that is a very southern uh, belt of uh, cities. Um, and so what's interesting is people, you know, there's this interesting disconnect between where people think the federal government is the most active and where it is actually the biggest. Now, a lot of those cities are that high because of military bases. Yeah. Yeah. And again, as we said from the last segment, where the where the U.S., at least in the modern era, citizens tend to have a very positive view mm-hmm. of the military. And I th- and that's part of the thing. It's like, keep in mind, the government is it has many pieces to it, uh, right. both local. Uh, you know, there's 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 police, there's um, there's the judiciary. I mean, it's just there's those- more than just that person sitting at the Department of X and of cubicle you know, pushing paper as the, as the image goes. Right, right. But I do think it's interesting that uh, where, where people's trust probably goes up is where they have the highest interaction or, or maybe just the, the least interaction because I don't think many people interact daily with the military. They just feel like it's there as yeah. a bulwark. And yeah, I sleep at night, but I'm so appreciative of, you know, it's like it inspires me every day to think about it, and it gives me a good feeling about the government to know to know that the, those people are there. Um, it's amazing, actually. So what's interesting, I, I've always felt this way in the federal government. There isn't, because I spend so much time in local government, there isn't as clear a feedback mechanism for when, uh, when you're doing well and when you're doing badly. I yeah. mean, um, there are direct electoral consequences to a mayor not getting the trash picked up. Yeah. But there are no electoral consequences to a president if it takes three weeks to get a passport. Yeah. Yeah, the citizen touch point is really much different. Much. Di- I mean, I, there, there are certain government, like TSA, the IRS, National Park Service, where, yeah, it absolutely... But a lot of federal programs um, are administered at the state and local level. Um, so even if you're like, so Medicaid, for example, you're frustrated with Medicaid, that's not a, f- t- typically if it's you're frustrated with how it's being administered, it's probably a local, state and local issue. Well, and so that's a really interesting point because working here in the city, one of the areas of oversight I had was over our Medicaid program. If you want frustration, it's really at that state and local implementation level because you have this 
absolutely um, Byzantine set of rules by which that you're, you're operating. That, that the federal government puts in place. on you. So, yeah. so what's happening then is you have this strong federal kind of set of requirements that are pushed down to the state and local to implement, and there's very little feedback mechanism on uh, on how to actually implement them. Yeah. So there's something, so that triggered something in my thinking. There's something in the PMA document, circling back to that, about breaking down silos mm-hmm. and doing things, you know, that, that I think the, the notion is, and it's something that, that I, I think resonates with both of us, is that the government often isn't as effective or efficient as it could be because there are these kind of bureaucratic stovepipes that exist and there isn't fluidity in terms of how they work with one another, and therefore a combination of things doesn't happen. We don't pool our resources more smartly to go after emerging uh, challenges. We don't communicate clearly to stakeholders and citizens because they're just hearing something, for example, in a in a HUD swim lane or right. an agriculture swim lane, and and they don't they speak a more blended language than the way the federal bureaucracy happens to be set up. Well, do you remember when President Obama famously talked about the fish? Yes, the salmon. He, yeah, the salmon. You you probably remember it better than I. You were probably there when yeah. it was the, when the speech. Well, was that being there's written. a different part of government that regulates. So when s- it's out in the ocean, it's, it's when Noah. it's swimming upstream and versus it, downstream. There's right, different right. organizations yeah, that, exactly right. that regulate. Um, and then he had a funny joke, which I'm not going to remember. You'll have to Google it. Yeah. Um, but but here's the question that I have: Since you are um, have worn both hats in your career, you've been mm-hmm. a federal public administrator and a state and local public administrator. Does does this, do state and local governments have a comparative advantage? Do they do a better job in breaking down silos versus the government? And is there something we can learn from that? I think they have a comparative advantage in where they're doing it well. They are doing it better than the federal government, right? So it's, yeah. it's kind of – there's so many more of them, and there's one federal government, so it's easier to find an example where, where someone might be performing better. Um, and they have a very different level of responsibility. But because there is this direct user interface, if you will, there is this, this consumer relationship that's much closer, there is a much stronger feedback that is forcing them to uh, evaluate the quality of the service they're delivering and try to improve it. But there's also, I think it goes beyond that, because I think an emerging trend, and I'm, you know, I'm, I didn't come up with this, I've just... Um, saw a, a talk on this, uh, uh, Bruce Katz from mm-hmm. Brookings, who wrote a new book called The New Localism, talks about how where government is innovating today is at the state and local level, not at the federal level. And it's actually, it's, it's, it's actually a nice message that he has, which is an optimistic view of public service and government going forward, but that his optimist, the center of gravity of his optimism is around the really cool and interesting things that are going on in smart cities and other loca- like Pittsburgh and other places where they're sure. really thinking creatively about how to improve society with new with technology and other things. Well, and I, and I think they're forced to innovate because they have things like. Um, balanced budget requirements. They have things like capital budgets, which, you know, uh, so they can make long-term investments and leverage the value of assets. And then they do have this immediate feedback loop and this kind of um, uh, political accountability. You know, if you're not getting it done as a mayor, you're not a mayor in four years. Um, and and it, again, I think it's, 
it's a little it's a little more attenuated at the level of the presidency, certainly as a senator or, or a congressman. Yeah, and I think one of the things that happens, and you mentioned it when you talked about Medicaid, is it's it the one way to think about it is what can the government, what can the U.S. federal government learn? from the way in which state and local governments are changing the way they do business to meet 21st century realities. But a completely different angle to take is, how can the federal government do a better job getting out of the way of state and local governments or facilitating? Because as you mentioned with Medicaid, a lot of the Byzantine requirements and rules and structures that are in place potentially prevent a more fluid delivery of services at the state and local no, level. No, with Medicaid, they actually had pilot programs and waivers. The problem is it took a year and a half to two years to get a waiver. Yeah. You're halfway through, in our case, the mayor, but in most cases with a Medicaid program, you're halfway through the governor's term. Yeah. And um, some cases, like Virginia, they have a one-term lim- one, one term limit for the governor. Yeah. Um, uh, so you're halfway through that term, you're probably it's it's probably halfway through the term before you realize you should probably be even thinking about a waiver. Yeah, and one of the other interesting uh, policy tensions with the way the federal government and the state and local governments interact is how funds flow. And so we mentioned so the funds tend to flow in these stovepipes, right? And I think the state and local from the state and local perspective, I think they they can come at it and say we need a more um, let's say if it's in education, a student-centric view of how to solve a problem, or if it's in healthcare, a more patient-centric view. But to do that, they would have to potentially pool funds from different federal funding streams in order to, 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 to take a more holistic view. But the gov- federal government doesn't often allow that type of pooling. There's pros and cons to it. So part of it is that the federal government is, it makes it hard to, to pool it the other thing is that the state level and, and city bureaucracies have kind of manifested themselves as kind of extensions of those federal bureaucracies. So if yeah. you have these silos and these stovepipes built at the federal level to start sending grant money down to the state and local level, the state and local build similar kind of local level silos. Yeah. So it, it, it gets hard to... Um, take a transportation program and put it together with an environment program and call it an infrastructure program because you've built, you know, you've got the USDOT and you've got the EPA and you've built sub-USDOTs and sub-EPAs below that. Yeah, so I I guess breaking down silos isn't just, there's many dimensions to it. It's not just about, you know, the federal government, you know, kind of integrating you know, offices differently. That, that's part of it, and there might and there might be, certainly be gains there. But it's also breaking down silos means even if the government stays in its current bureaucratic swim lanes, can they figure out how to break down silos at the other end of the of the value chain, down where the where things are hitting the the ground at the state and local level, yeah, and, and I, becoming partners to state and local governments and incentivizing them to do what they're doing and celebrating that more. So I think um, I think one of the ways to do that is to you know incentivize innovation through grants and pilots. The problem then becomes the concern, there are two concerns. One is uh, the state and locals may uh, not prioritize something that the federal government thought was an important priority. Yeah. Um, so imagine that you, you gave them the ability, let's use education as an example. Imagine you give them the ability to pool funding 
to do a more student-centric, holistic approach to uh, educational intervention, and 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 they take that flexibility and end up um, investing in a more narrow set of student outcomes, and we're, other student outcomes are left behind, or something like that. Or worse yet, and this is a very real concern, they invest in a very narrow set of students. Well, and, no, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a big a big chunk of the underlying fear of state-level flexibility relates to uh, unresolved issues around civil rights, around uh, around equal access. So I, that's a... I know, and I'm, I don't know if I can come up with it on this podcast, but it feels to me like there's a solve there. It feels to me that there's a framework that can mm-hmm. be developed. But that comes back to the trust issue, right? Yeah. It really does. That trust in government... The people responding to that survey, a lot of them work in government, right? <laughs> That's Depending true. You on just, the city, it could be just five to twenty percent. Right. With your Johnny Cash impression, yeah, you exactly really just right. made the point. Right. No, I, I, yeah, there, there's a, there's a trust component, but I, you know, that tension between, well, if more pooled funding creates flexible flexibility and innovation, but it also creates risk that certain segments of the public policy objective are going to be left behind. I don't know. I think there's uh, ways to test that, to pilot that, uh, because I do feel that um, that I agree with with Bruce Katz that there is reason to be optimistic. No, I, 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 I think I think there are too. Let me just throw one more risk into this optimism on on silo smashing, and that was, and that's because I'm so much older than you. <laughs> you um, uh, during the late Reagan and uh, Bush one, so Stockman and Darman, there was um, a lot of uh, pressure to kind of create block grants. Mm-hmm. And so there was this phrase called block and cut. And so the idea would be to aggregate the funds into block grants, maximize the flexibility. But once it's kind of pushed into a big number, then you could start slicing 5, 10, 15, 20% off of it. So program advocates became very skeptical of all this magical flexibility, they just saw it as another way of um, of pushing the money together to make it easier, a bigger and easier. And was target. there evidence of that? Did that actually happen? And like, do we know? Like, is there any way to track whether whether if you provide the flexibility mm-hmm. to state and local government? to take these silos and smash so, them so that something bad happens. I think that's the, you're, you're now on to the solution to uh, the risk, which is creating clear accountability metrics. The problem is, and you know this very well, a lot of programs don't have two or three things that they're measuring as a, as a, as a clear line of sight, North Star of what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah. You, I mean, you go. They've got many more than that. They've got many, many more yeah. of that. So if you were to block and flex, I think you need to block, flex, and measure. And yeah. then if, you know, if, if people are, are getting a much better outcome for a lesser cost, that's actually victory. But, you know, victory is measured around here oftentimes in how big the program is. Yeah. Well, I mean, as we start to wrap up, one of as the... the construction gets I know, and but I like it. Here. You yeah. know, I mean, this well, is this real, is world, real of, world. The work of government. Right We're not there. in yeah. some studio somewhere. We're in Dan's office right now. Right. And Dan works in a noisy office. I do. <laughs> um, I think one of the, the points that I've made, and I think I made it in some previous podcasts where we talked about the PMA, is... What I used to encourage 
when I was um, at OMB doing PMA type things, it's like we need to have a bigger tent for what success is. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a lot of things that are going on that are part of this broader accomplishment that we're having, including, for example, like I felt sometimes like an inspector general report comes out and they uncover and uh, fraud and, and, and arrest a bunch of people. I'm like, that's government work, working. Effect. I mean, it's, there's a sad element that right. there's fraud, right. but also it's like we're catching the bad guys. And, um, and that's a positive story to tell in terms of, of the strength of our enforcement techniques. Well, here I feel like if I'm the, 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 uh, the new OMB uh, leadership here, if we could, if the more... Uh, silo, the more smart cities are out there, the more cities that are innovating and doing creative things, that's a victory in my objective in the PMA to, to smash silos and to create a better atmosphere for high-performing government. And, you know, if you start thinking about this, the story of Pittsburgh and the story of other cities as a success for the national government as well, because either we didn't get in their way or we figured out ways to enable and accelerate, you know, why not consider that a, a victory in terms of how the U.S. government works with the rest of government entities to, to continue to evolve? So my message would be big tent in terms of success, but also that I would hope that that would incentivize more pushing and thinking that if a state and local's success is my success, then I'm going to be inspired to think differently about how to give them the tools necessary for them to innovate even further. And I think, I think it comes back to then a clearer definition of what success is, right? And getting, you know, we talked a lot about this when we were trying to put together the um, administrative benchmarks, and people were arguing over whether the definitions were right and whether we were collecting enough data to determine um, the relative um, value of the positions. And my argument was uh, any argument that has, you know, is arguing about the quality and the form and the nature of the data is better than the arguments we were having before, which were entirely around anecdote and you know oh, assumption yes. and you know legend and 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 oral tradition. Yes. And so I think if we can push it more to this idea of um, uh, evidence base and yeah. saying, you know, here are, the, here are the things we're actually, the outcomes we're trying to get to, and here's how we're going to measure them, and then we're going to give you flexibility to get there and measure your performance yes. in that direction, and in exchange you get more flexibility, I think that that will enhance innovation, improve outcomes, and raise trust. I can remember being at, at OMB and, like, walking into my boss's office and being like, I have an issue for you, and I have data. And it's like, right. ooh, wow, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Those things usually don't come together. <laughs> a rare occurrence. Right. Uh, that needs, obviously, to become a much more regular occurrence. So what page on the President's Management Agenda do you find that chart so everyone can go look at it? Oh, gosh. Sorry, uh, I should have warned you. I was going to ask the question. It's on page 6 of 52. 6 of 52. Yeah. It's oh, cool chart. Yeah, early on. There's, a, there's some good language in here about... Uh, some interesting topics. There's also really strong language. I mentioned this in the last podcast, I think, in the budget and in, about the importance of government workers um, and how critical they are to the success of government. And I, I'm very much appreciative that that the, that the document and the administration uh, and the way they've developed this recognizes the importance of the workforce. Uh, and all those cities, that's probably where all the Gov Actually listeners are. 
who yeah. knew probably yeah, exactly. El Paso, Texas. And it's amazing. I can't go anywhere yeah. without running into someone who's like, love that Gov Actually podcast. Right. You uh, must travel <laughs> in very strange places. <laughs> I but, do. Uh, uh, well, um, we'll we'll look forward to getting back together and getting to maybe page twelve or fourteen next time. Uh, that would be uh, that would be exciting. Or I, I, I've there, there's there's probably an endless number of uh, topics and deep dives we can do just from this document alone. Let's so. see if we can grab a guest to come and talk to us about it as That'd well. That'd be great. Thanks, right, thanks, Dan. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening to Gov Actually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod, or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com, or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually Podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us. Thanks again.